Chapter Fifteen of Green Mansions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Green Mansions by W. H. Hudson. Chapter Fifteen. The next day we were early at work. Nuflo had already gathered, dried, and conveyed to a place of concealment the greater portion of his garden produce. He was determined to leave nothing to be taken by any wandering party of savages that might call at the house during our absence. He had no fear of a visit from his neighbors. They would not know, he said, that he and Rima were out of the wood. A few large earthen pots, filled with shelled maize, beans, and sun-dried strips of pumpkin, still remained to be disposed of. Taking up one of these vessels and asking me to follow with another, he started off through the wood. We went a distance of five or six hundred yards, then made our way down a very steep incline, close to the border of the forest on the western side. Arrived at the bottom, we followed the bank a little further, and I then found myself once more at the foot of the precipice over which I had desperately thrown myself on the stormy evening after the snake had bitten me. Nuflo, stealing silently and softly before me through the bushes, had observed a caution and secrecy in approaching this spot, resembling that of a wise old hen when she visits her hidden nest to lay an egg. And here was his nest, his most secret treasure-house, which he had probably not revealed even to me without a sharp inward conflict, notwithstanding that our fates were now linked together. The lower portion of the bank was of rock and in it, about ten or twelve feet above the ground, but easily reached from below, there was a natural cavity large enough to contain all his portable property. Here, besides the foodstuff, he had already stored a quantity of dried tobacco-leaf, his rude weapons, cooking utensils, ropes, mats, and other objects. Two or three more journeys were made for the remaining pots, after which we adjusted a slab of sandstone to the opening, which was fortunately narrow, plastered up the crevices with clay, and covered them over with moss to hide all traces of our work. Towards evening, after we had refreshed ourselves with a long siesta, Nuflo brought out from some other hiding-place two sacks, one weighing about twenty pounds and containing smoke-dried meat, also grease and gum for lighting purposes, and a few other small objects. This was his load. The other sack, which was smaller, and contained parched corn and raw beans, was for me to carry. The old man, cautious in all his movements, always acting as if surrounded by invisible spies, delayed setting out until an hour after dark. Then, skirting the forest on its west side, we left Itaiwa on our right hand, and after travelling over rough, difficult ground, with only the stars to light us, we saw the waning moon rise not long before dawn. Our course had been a northeasterly one at first, now it was due east, with broad, dry savannas and patches of open forest as far as we could see before us. It was weary walking on that first night, and weary waiting on the first day when we sat in the shade during the long, hot hours, persecuted by small, stinging flies. But the days and nights that succeeded were far worse when the weather became bad with intense heat and frequent heavy falls of rain. The one compensation I had looked for, 
which would have outweighed all the extreme discomforts we suffered, was denied me. Rima was no more to me, or with me now, than she had been during those wild days in her native woods, when every bush and bowl and tangled creeper or fern frond had joined in a conspiracy to keep her out of my sight. It is true that at intervals in the daytime she was visible, sometimes within speaking distance, so that I could address a few words to her. But there was no companionship, and we were fellow travellers only like birds flying independently in the same direction, not so widely separated but that they can occasionally hear and see each other. The pilgrim in the desert is sometimes attended by a bird, and the bird, with its freer motions, will often leave him a league behind and seem lost to him, but only to return and show its form again, for it has never lost sight nor recollection of the traveller toiling slowly over the surface. Rima kept us company in some such wild, erratic way as that. A word, a sign from Nuflo, was enough for her to know the direction to take, the distant forest or still more distant mountain near which we should have to pass. She would hasten on and be lost to our sight, and when there was a forest in the way, she would explore it, resting in the shade and finding her own food. But invariably she was before us at each resting or camping place. Indian villages were seen during the journey, but only to be avoided, and in like manner, if we caught sight of Indians travelling or camping at a distance, we would alter our course, or conceal ourselves to escape observation. Only on one occasion, two days after setting out, were we compelled to speak with strangers. We were going round a hill, and all at once came face to face with three persons travelling in an opposite direction, two men and a woman, and by a strange fatality, Rima at that moment happened to be with us. We stood for some time talking to these people, who were evidently surprised at our appearance, and wished to learn who we were. But Nuflo, who spoke their language like one of themselves, was too cunning to give any true answer. They, on their side, told us that they had been to visit a relative at Chani, the name of a river three days ahead of us, and were now returning to their own village at Baila Bela, two days beyond Parahuari. After parting from them, Nuflo was much troubled in his mind for the rest of that day. These people, he said, would probably rest at some Parahuari village, where they would be sure to give a description of us, and so it might eventually come to the knowledge of our unneighborly neighbor, Rooney, that we had left Itaiwa. Other incidents of our long and wearisome journey need not be related. Sitting under some shady tree during the sultry hours, with Rima only too far out of earshot, or by the nightly fire, the old man told me little by little and with much digression, chiefly on sacred subjects, the strange story of the girl's origin. About seventeen years back, Nuflo had no sure method to compute time by. When he was already verging on old age, he was one of a company of nine men, living a kind of roving life in the very part of Guiana through which we were now travelling. The others, much younger than himself, were all equally offenders against the laws of Venezuela and fugitives from justice. Nuflo was the leader of this gang, for it happened that he had passed a great portion of his life outside the pale of civilization, and could talk the Indian language, and knew this part of Guiana intimately. 
but according to his own account he was not in harmony with them. They were bold, desperate men, whose evil appetites had so far only been whetted by the crimes they had committed, while he, with passions worn out, recalling his many bad acts, and with a vivid conviction of the truth of all he had been taught in early life, for Nuflo was nothing if not religious, was now grown timid and desirous only of making his peace with heaven. This difference of disposition made him morose and quarrelsome with his companions, and they would, he said, have murdered him without remorse if he had not been so useful to them. Their favourite plan was to hang about the neighbourhood of some small isolated settlement, keeping a watch on it, and when most of the male inhabitants were absent, to swoop down on it and work their will. Now, shortly after one of these raids, it happened that a woman they had carried off, becoming a burden to them, was flung into a river to the alligators. But when being dragged down to the waterside, she cast up her eyes, and in a loud voice cried to God to execute vengeance on her murderers. Nuflo affirmed that he took no part in this black deed. Nevertheless, the woman's dying appeal to heaven preyed on his mind. He feared that it might have won a hearing, and the person eventually commissioned to execute vengeance, after the usual days, of course, might act on the principle of the old proverb, Tell me whom you are with, and I will tell you what you are, and punish the innocent, himself to wit, along with the guilty. But while thus anxious about his spiritual interests, he was not yet prepared to break with his companions. He thought it best to temporize, and succeeded in persuading them that it would be unsafe to attack another Christian settlement for some time to come, that in the interval they might find some pleasure, if no great credit, by turning their attention to the Indians. The infidels, he said, were God's natural enemies and fair game to the Christian. To make a long story short, Nuflo's Christian band, after some successful adventures, met with a reverse which reduced their number from nine to five. Flying from their enemies, they sought safety at Riolama, an uninhabited place, where they found it possible to exist for some weeks on game, which was abundant, and wild fruits. One day at noon, while ascending a mountain at the southern extremity of the Riolama range, in order to get a view of the country beyond the summit, Nuflo and his companions discovered a cave, and, finding it dry, without animal occupants, and with a level floor, they at once determined to make it their dwelling-place for a season. Wood for firing and water were to be had close by. They were also well provided with smoked flesh of a tapir they had slaughtered a day or two before, so that they could afford to rest for a time in so comfortable a shelter. At a short distance from the cave, they made a fire on the rock to toast some slices of meat for their dinner, and while thus engaged, all at once one of the men uttered a cry of astonishment, and casting up his eyes Nuflo beheld, standing near and regarding them with surprise and fear in her wide-open eyes, a woman of a most wonderful appearance. The one slight garment she had on was silky and white as the snow on the summit of some great mountain, but of the snow when the sinking sun touches and gives it some delicate changing color, which is like fire. Her dark hair was like a cloud from which her face looked out, and her head was surrounded by an aureole like that of a saint in a picture, only more beautiful. 
For, said Nuflo, a picture is a picture, and the other was a reality, which is finer. Seeing her, he fell on his knees and crossed himself, and all the time her eyes, full of amazement and shining with such a strange splendour that he could not meet them, were fixed on him and not on the others, and he felt that she had come to save his soul, in danger of perdition, owing to his companionship with men who were at war with God and wholly bad. But at this moment his comrades, recovering from their astonishment, sprang to their feet, and the heavenly woman vanished. Just behind where she had stood, and not twelve yards from them, there was a huge chasm in the mountain, its jagged, precipitous sides clothed with thorny bushes. The men now cried out that she had made her escape that way, and down after her they rushed, pell-mell. Nuflo cried out after them that they had seen a saint, and that some horrible thing would befall them if they allowed any evil thought to enter their hearts. But they scoffed at his words, and were soon far down out of hearing, while he, trembling with fear, remained praying to the woman that had appeared to them, and had looked with such strange eyes at him, not to punish him for the sins of the others. Before long the men returned, disappointed and sullen, for they had failed in their search for the woman, and perhaps Nuflo's warning words had made them give up the chase too soon. At all events they seemed ill at ease, and made up their minds to abandon the cave. In a short time they left the place to camp that night at a considerable distance from the mountain. But they were not satisfied. They had now recovered from their fear, but not from the excitement of an evil passion. And finally, after comparing notes, they came to the conclusion that they had missed a great prize through Nuflo's cowardice, and when he reproved them, they blasphemed all the saints in the calendar, and even threatened him with violence. Fearing to remain longer in the company of such godless men, he only waited until they slept, then rose up cautiously, helped himself to most of the provisions, and made his escape devoutly hoping that after losing their guide they would all speedily perish. Finding himself alone now, and master of his own actions, Nuflo was in terrible distress, for while his heart was in the utmost fear, it yet urged him imperiously to go back to the mountain, to seek again for that sacred being who had appeared to him, and been driven away by his brutal companions. If he obeyed that inner voice he would be saved." If he resisted it, then there would be no hope for him, and along with those who had cast the woman to the alligators he would be lost eternally. Finally, on the following day, he went back, although not without fear and trembling, and sat down on the stone just where he had sat toasting his tapir meat on the previous day. But he waited in vain, and at length that voice within him, which he had so far obeyed, began urging him to descend into the valley-like chasm down which the woman had escaped from his comrades, and to seek for her there. Accordingly he rose and began cautiously and slowly climbing down over the broken jagged rocks and through a dense mass of thorny bushes and creepers. At the bottom of the chasm a clear, swift stream of water rushed with foam and noise along its rocky bed, but before reaching it, and when it was still twenty yards lower down, he was startled by hearing a low moan among the bushes, and looking about for the cause, he found the wonderful woman, his saviour as he expressed it, 
She was not now standing, nor able to stand, but half reclining among the rough stones. One foot, which she had sprained in that headlong flight down the ragged slope, wedged immovably between the rocks, and in this painful position she had remained a prisoner since noon on the previous day. She now gazed on her visitor in silent consternation, while he, casting himself prostrate on the ground, implored her forgiveness and begged to know her will. But she made no reply, and at length, finding that she was powerless to move, he concluded that, though a saint and one of the beings that men worship, she was also flesh and liable to accidents while sojourning on earth, and perhaps, he thought, that accident which had befallen her had been specially designed by the powers above to prove him. With great labour, and not without causing her much pain, he succeeded in extricating her from her position, and then finding that the injured foot was half crushed and blue and swollen, he took her up in his arms and carried her to the stream. There, making a cup of a broad green leaf, he offered her water, which she drank eagerly, and he also laved her injured foot in the cold stream, and bandaged it with fresh aquatic leaves. Finally he made her a soft bed of moss and dry grass, and placed her on it. That night he spent keeping watch over her, at intervals applying fresh wet leaves to her foot as the old ones became dry and wilted from the heat of the inflammation. The effect of all he did was that the terror with which she regarded him gradually wore off, and next day, when she seemed to be recovering her strength, he proposed by signs to remove her to the cave higher up, where she would be sheltered in case of rain. She appeared to understand him, and allowed herself to be taken up in his arms, and carried with much labour to the top of the chasm. In the cave he made her a second couch, and tended her assiduously. He made a fire on the floor, and kept it burning night and day and supplied her with water to drink and fresh leaves for her foot. There was little more that he could do. From the choicest and fattest bits of toasted tapir flesh she offered her, she turned away with disgust. A little cassava bread soaked in water she would take, but seemed not to like it. After a time, fearing that she would starve, he took to hunting after wild fruits, edible bulbs, and gums, and on these small things she subsisted during the whole time of their sojourn together in the desert. The woman, although lamed for life, was now so far recovered as to be able to limp about without assistance, and she spent a portion of each day out among the rocks and trees on the mountains. Nuflo at first feared that she would now leave him, but before long he became convinced that she had no such intentions, and yet she was profoundly unhappy. He was accustomed to see her seated on a rock, as if brooding over some secret grief, her head bowed, and great tears falling from half-closed eyes. From the first he had conceived the idea that she was in the way of becoming a mother at no distant date, an idea which seemed to accord badly with the suppositions as to the nature of this heavenly being he was privileged to minister to, and so win salvation but he was now convinced of its truth, and he imagined that in her condition he had discovered the cause of that sorrow and anxiety which preyed continually on her. By means of that dumb language of signs which enabled them to converse together a little, 
he made it known to her that at a great distance from the mountains there existed a place where there were beings like herself, women and mothers of children, who would comfort and tenderly care for her. When she had understood, she seemed pleased and willing to accompany him to that distant place. And so it came to pass that they left their rocky shelter and the mountains of Riolama far behind. But for several days, as they slowly journeyed over the plain, she would pause at intervals in her limping walk to gaze back on those blue summits, shedding abundant tears. Fortunately, the village Voa, on the river of the same name, which was the nearest Christian settlement to Riolama, whither his course was directed, was well known to him. He had lived there in former years, and, what was of a great advantage, the inhabitants were ignorant of his worst crimes, or, to put it in his own subtle way, of the crimes committed by the men he had acted with. Great was the astonishment and curiosity of the people of Voa when, after many weeks travelling, Nuflo arrived at last with his companion. But he was not going to tell the truth, nor even the least particle of the truth, to a gaping crowd of inferior persons. For these ingenious lies. Only to the priest he told the whole story, dwelling minutely on all he had done to rescue and protect her, all of which was approved by the holy man, whose first act was to baptize the woman for fear that she was not a Christian. Let it be said, to Nuflo's credit, that he objected to this ceremony, arguing that she could not be a saint, with an aureole in token of her sainthood, yet stand in need of being baptized by a priest. A priest, he added, with a little chuckle of malicious pleasure, who was often seen drunk, who cheated at cards, and was sometimes suspected of putting poison on his fighting cock's spur to make sure of the victory. Doubtless the priest had his faults, but he was not without humanity, and for the whole seven years of that unhappy stranger's sojourn at Voa, he did everything in his power to make her existence tolerable. Some weeks after arriving she gave birth to a female child, and then the priest insisted on naming it Riolama, in order, he said, to keep in remembrance the strange story of the mother's discovery at that place. Rima's mother could not be taught to speak either Spanish or Indian, and when she found that the mysterious and melodious sounds that fell from her own lips were understood by none, she ceased to utter them, and thereafter preserved an unbroken silence among the people she lived with. But from the presence of others she shrank, as if in disgust or fear, excepting only Nuflo and the priest, whose kindly intentions she appeared to understand and appreciate. So far her life in the village was silent and sorrowful. With her child it was different, and every day that was not wet— Taking the little thing by the hand, she would limp painfully out into the forest, and there, sitting on the ground, the two would commune with each other by the hour in their wonderful language. At length she began to grow perceptibly paler and feebler, week by week, day by day, until she could no longer go out into the wood, but sat or reclined, panting for breath in the dull hot room, waiting for death to release her. At the same time, little Rima, who had always appeared frail, as if from sympathy, now began to fade and look more shadowy, 
so that it was expected that she would not long survive her parent. To the mother death came slowly, but at last it seemed so near that Nuflo and the priest were together at her side, waiting to see the end. It was then that little Rima, who had learnt from infancy to speak in Spanish, rose from the couch where her mother had been whispering to her, and began with some difficulty to express what was in the dying woman's mind. Her child, she had said, could not continue to live in that hot, wet place, but if taken away to a distance where there were mountains and a cooler air, she would survive and grow strong again. Hearing this, old Nuflo declared that the child should not perish, that he himself would take her away to Parahuari, a distant place where there were mountains and dry plains and open woods, that he would watch over her and care for her there as he had cared for her mother at Riolama. When the substance of this speech had been made known by Rima to the dying woman, she suddenly rose up from her couch, which she had not risen from for many days, and stood erect on the floor, her wasted face shining with joy. Then Nuflo knew that God's angels had come for her, and put out his arms to save her from falling, and even while he held her that sudden glory went out from her face, now of a dead white like burnt-out ashes, and murmuring something soft and melodious, her spirit passed away. Once more Nuflo became a wanderer, now with the fragile-looking little Rima for companion, the sacred child who had inherited the portion of his intercessor from a sacred mother, the priest, who had probably become infected with Nuflo's superstitions, did not allow them to leave Voa empty-handed, but gave the old man as much calico as would serve to buy hospitality, and whatsoever he might require from the Indians for many a day to come. At Parahuari, where they arrived safely at last, they lived for some little time at one of the villages. But the child had an instinctive aversion to all savages, or possibly the feeling was derived from her mother, for it had shown itself early at Voa, where she had refused to learn their language, and this eventually led Nuflo to go away and live apart from them, in the forest by Itaiwa, where he made himself a house and garden. The Indians, however, continued friendly with him, and visited him with frequency. But when Rima grew up, developing into that mysterious woodland girl I found her, they became suspicious, and in the end regarded her with dangerously hostile feeling. She, poor child, detested them because they were incessantly at war with the wild animals she loved, her companions, and having no fear of them, for she did not know that they had it in their minds to turn the little poisonous arrows against herself, she was constantly in the woods frustrating them, and the animals, in league with her, seemed to understand her note of warning, and hid themselves or took to flight at the approach of danger. At length their hatred and fear grew to such a degree that they determined to make away with her, and one day, having matured a plan, they went to the wood and spread themselves two and two about it. The couples did not keep together, but moved about or remained concealed at a distance of forty or fifty yards apart, lest she should be missed. Two of the savages, armed with blowpipes, were near the border of the forest on the side nearest to the village, 
and one of them, observing a motion in the foliage of a tree, ran swiftly and cautiously towards it to try and catch a glimpse of the enemy. And he did see her, no doubt, as she was there watching both him and his companions, and blew an arrow at her, but even while in the act of blowing it, he was himself struck by a dart that buried itself deep in his flesh, just over his heart. He ran some distance with the fatal barbed point in his flesh, and met his comrade, who had mistaken him for the girl, and shot him. The wounded man threw himself down to die, and dying related that he had fired at the girl sitting up in a tree, and that she had caught the arrow in her hand, only to hurl it instantly back with such force and precision that it pierced his flesh just above the heart. He had seen it all with his own eyes, and his friend who had accidentally slain him believed his story, and repeated it to the others. Rima had seen one Indian shoot the other, and when she told her grandfather, he explained to her that it was an accident, but he guessed why the arrow had been fired. From that day the Indians hunted no more in the wood, and at length one day Nuflo, meeting an Indian who did not know him and with whom he had some talk, heard the strange story of the arrow, and that the mysterious girl who could not be shot was the offspring of an old man and a deity who had become enamoured of him, that, growing tired of her consort, the deity had returned to her river, leaving her half-human child to play her malicious pranks in the wood. This, then, was Nuflo's story, told not in Nuflo's manner, which was infinitely prolix, and think not that it failed to move me that I failed to bless him for what he had done, in spite of his selfish motives. End of chapter.